Welcome to the video podcast, Richard Gage, 9-11 Unleashed, where truth and unity matter. Take the deep dive with highly influential voices in and around the 9-11 truth movement. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Richard Gage, 9-11 Unleashed. Awesome to be here with you. You're not going to believe the guest that we have today. Uh, we're going to be going deep, uh, and I'm telling you, we're going to go deep. What What is it about 9-11 that we fear the most? The truth about 9-11, that is, of course. Before we do, bring on my guest. I'm going to bring on my wonderful wife and assistant. Uh, this is Ms. Gail Gage. Hello, Gail. Hello, Richard, and hello, everyone, and Madhava. I will not be on video because I just came from an unplanned dentist appointment and my mouth is extremely numb. Oh, dear. So if I sound weird, that's why. And it's true. I, I kissed her just uh, a, a little while ago and she she couldn't even like reply, if you know what I, I mean. It was, it was not there. The lips were not functional. Anyway, they, don't connect, they don't connect yet. Yeah. TMI. <laughs> Yeah, oh. what what is the the new news with Richard Gage nine eleven? Goodness, well, um, well, one of the things I'm doing personally is really going to take on more social media challenges. Here, there's a lot of new social media platforms that some of you may never have heard of. That actually, some of them have really taken off, and they've got like millions of views on some of their videos. Uh, a couple of the newer ones that you guys, if you are on these social media, you can go find him. We'll be posting his uh, his username and how to connect to the, these platforms. Um, I'll put those on our website and different, the platforms we do have. So they're super you. Oh mm -hmm. boy, the word, <laughs> P's are challenging from my lips. Um, huge tube, which is the word huge minus the H. So huge tube. Um, Thinking about checking out Parlor again, and then we are on Rumble, but there's not very many viewers there, and we're slowly getting more videos up. That's uh, not very user-friendly platform to upload videos. And Gab is one that's similar to Facebook. Um, and I'm also going to be opening a, an account for Richard on Spotify so that you can find his MP3 audio versions of all of his podcast and interviews on there yeah so, yes. fantastic and um th this is um really exciting the way we're expanding and so uh i imagine you need some help out there people sharing uh these podcasts and our articles around how do they do that yes that would be amazing um just every social media platform you have if you can share the videos share everything that we share um, there are so many viewers out there, or 9-11 Truth, um, part of the 9-11 Truth family, who I think still does not know that Richard's not with AE. So if I go to AE's Facebook page, um, there are a lot more views and likes and followers on there than we have at Richard Gage 9-11. Um, so yes, if, if you could just help get the word out there, if you 
folks share on your social media comments or comments on our post or your own post and just let people know. I've seen a lot of you doing that already and it's greatly appreciated. You guys are, a lot of you are already doing a fantastic job sharing and yeah. And then um, that's, that's the main thing is just getting the word out that Richard is on his own. Now he's not with AE. A lot of people don't know that Uh, I, Mm. I am flying solo. Um, and you can learn more about it at uh, uh, on the website, um, richardgage911.org. There is uh, an article there and a video where we explain all this. So uh, mm-hmm. be sure to look for Flying Solo. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's uh, been quite a journey here. We're starting all over from scratch uh, mm-hmm. for two months now. We've gone from uh, 80,000 on an email list down to 500. So we're asking for you to help. And I think there'll be a lot of help coming from the great um, audience that we're going to be generating as a result of our wonderful, uh, thoughtful uh, guest today. So uh, without further ado, I want to introduce Madhava. But first, uh, Gail, tell people how to uh, uh, ask their questions of, of Madhava. Yes. So during this podcast, and especially towards the end, if you have any questions at all, you can add them or uh, put them in the comments of Facebook, both of our Facebook uh, accounts, the personal one and the Facebook page that's public. And then on YouTube. Unfortunately, so far, we haven't been able to gather the comments from LinkedIn or Twitter. But um, you can also ask your questions, go to the website into the contact us and ask your questions there and we'll do our best to get back. And I also really want to tell everybody that if your question does not get answered, I apologize ahead of time. Sometimes I can't catch them all um, or they're asked uh, too, uh, too close to the end of the podcast and they don't get included, but I will do my best and just know that every question is a good question. <laughs> not not being left out on purpose if I miss yours. Yeah, maybe Madhava will will feel otherwise. But uh, yeah, thanks, Gail. <laughs> and let me introduce uh, this fine gentleman uh, at this time because you know what can an anesthesiology an anesthesiologist teach us about nine eleven? You'll be surprised. This one who made his own fearful journey through the Great Awakening moment that each of us have had in this movement in one way or another. Um, uh, These are the questions uh, that he asks in his book called Woke. Why is it so hard uh, to get people to see what's right in front of them? It it must be something deeper, right? And that's where he's going. That's where we're going in this podcast tonight. Deeper, a lot deeper. He takes us into our internal responses that form our individual comfort zones out of our deepest need for security. He invites us to look at our own biases that shut down our objectivity, which subjects us then to further manipulation and tyranny. Madhava is primarily an epistemologist, most interested in how we as individuals know what we know doesn't require much inquiry to see that most of us adopt narratives largely from what we have been told. See what being truly awake means to this anesthesiologist. 
Come examine yourself. I'll join you on this step outside of our comfort zone. Madhavasetti graduated from MIT in 1988 with a degree in electrical engineering. He spent six years in the aerospace and defense industries building simulation systems and computer graphic interfaces. He participated in global research expedition, including to the polar ice cap funded by the Office of Naval Research, ONR. Having realized by this time the nature of the deep state that he refused to be recruited into those darker activities with the military. And so he began a new career in 1998 at Baylor College of Medicine, emerging with an MD with further training in anesthesiology at University of Pennsylvania, serving as chief resident in 2002, then as clinical anesthesiologist and director of anesthesiology at Lawrence General Hospital uh, until 2017. He spends more time writing these days, including as the author of the book, Woke, an Anesthesiologist's View. Without further ado, let me introduce you to my friend, Madhava Seti. Hello, Madhava. Hi, Richard. Hello, everybody. Great to be with you. Um, and thank you for that kind introduction. Um, yeah, well, look, I would like to say something here because that was a very, very generous uh, introduction. And I'd like to let your audience know something because four years ago, when uh, Richard and I first spoke, he didn't know me from anyone. And uh, he really offered his ear and um, and spoke to me openly on the phone. And I was just so touched uh, that he would take the time to um, engage with someone he didn't know who potentially didn't really have any role to play in this. But um, thank you, Richard, for that. Uh, thank you for offering your wisdom to me and to AE 911 Truth, where I've where I've emerged out of recently and no longer speak for, but uh, I'm going to need your help a lot in the days and weeks and months and years coming. Well, we're we're all here to help you. And look, I'm going to speak for your audience. We really, really appreciate everything you've done uh, in your career. And um, I think for a lot of us who are perhaps going a little nuts, not able to understand why, you know, accredited architects weren't speaking out to find AE911 and to find you uh, was a, was a boon, a godsend. And before I go on, I'm just going to ask you one technical question on my end. I'm, I look jerky. Am I smooth on your end? Is everything okay here? You look great. All right. Thank you for that. Yeah. So, you know, this is a really interesting time. It really, really is. I don't even know where to begin with this uh, conversation. Um, you really set me up to go deep. I don't know how far we're going to go. Let's find out. Well, we've got time to go as deep as we want to go. Let me put it that way. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have questions that are probably going to take us even deeper. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. Yeah, my video is a little jerky, but that's okay. Well, you know, you brought up so many things right from the beginning um, about like what is going on. And, you know, one thing I would like to just offer here is um, we often say we need to wake people up. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
and what we mean is we need to, you know, people need to realize what's going on out, out there. Like they're not seeing it. Right. Yeah. But I personally feel like they need to, like, we have to see what is in our own distortions. Like we need to wake up to our own biases and, you know, that's sort of where I'm coming from here. Um, you know, generally when I speak to people about nine 11, I know way more about it than anyone in the room or in the audience, but here I'm talking to you, you know, the world expert on this whole thing. So I have very little. The whole thing. And certainly not an expert. I, 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 w- I would say I'm a speaker and an assembler of evidence, which many others have put together. I just have to correct the record on this one and specifically about the world trade center only. So you go right ahead. I'm just going to correct you if you overstate my credentials. All right. You're free to overstate my credentials anytime you want to. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. So, so in terms of 9-11, you know, it, it's, it begs the question, you know, what, what, what do I have to offer you and your audience? And, it, yeah. you know, it, it's not about um, the melting point of steel. It's not about, you know, what we mean by, you know, microspheres of iron. That's not it. You know, that, we know that doesn't work. It, it works it so worked for me, by the way. I, it was hard, but it did work for me. So there are some people who are uh, vulnerable to the evidence, the hard evidence. But I'm with you. There's a lot of people who just need a whole lot more something mm-hmm. than that. And that's what we're here to talk about. Yeah. Keep- yeah, tell me where you want me to start. I can start from any end to this. Well, okay. Let's let's start. What what happened to you, Madhava? Yeah. Were you you were minding your own business like me, I presume, uh, for me in 2006 when I heard on the radio uh David Ray Griffin which just rocked my world and changed my life. What happened to you? Mm. Well, I have a lot of compassion for you and all uh folks like you who saw David Ray Griffin, you know, 15 years ago, or people who saw Loose Change when it first came out, because I don't know how you're able to sort of carry the burden of knowing that what, what, what's going on for so long. I've only been doing it for about four years. And um, like you uh, uh, said, um, I was minding my own business. And I'll be brief because, you know, how many wake up stories to 9-11 do, do people want to hear? But mine was, you know, potentially different. It was uh, about four years ago, four years ago in a month, almost exactly, where just out of the blue, my wife was looking at um, YouTube videos on her phone. And she said, yeah, this this never made sense to me. I, I just don't know, you know, what's going on. And I said, sweetheart, what, what, what are you looking at? And she showed me the 30-second clip uh, of Building 7 collapsing. And I said, you know, what the hell is this? where is this? And she said, this happened on nine 11. And right away I was like, what, you know, first of all, it's like, how come I didn't know about this? And secondly, instantly you knew that something was awry, if you will. Right. Yes. Falling on its own footprint in a matter of seven seconds, didn't get hit by a plane, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, instead of going to, um, the, the internet and, and asking like, so what are people saying about this? I went right to the NIST documents. Uh-huh. And 
and then I went, you know, I was like, what is, what is the official explanation for this? You know, please tell me that first before I get, you know, um, corrupted by other people's thoughts about it. Oh. Um, and, and then I went to colleagues, you know, who were engineering graduates from MIT. And I said, look, do you see, like, look at this. It's, it's obvious, right? The, the story is wrong. The explanation is absolutely wrong. And the, the bit, I don't even know what the impediments were, but they didn't get on board with my opinion that, you know, that the, that the official story was wrong. Not that I knew what, what happened, but clearly the official story was wrong. And when they didn't come to agreement with me immediately, that's when I was like, wait a minute, am I seeing, am I, am I doing the wrong thing? Have I forgotten what Newton's laws are? I mean, what, what, why am, why aren't we on the same page? And, um, and that's where I found you and AE uh, 9-11 Truth. Um, so that's where, uh, that, that, that's sort of the awakening story. And, um, you know, instead of like having a discourse with me, they instead like found YouTube videos showing some guy, you know, with a, a blowtorch and a piece of steel saying, look, I can bend the steel. And, and they were like, see, you're wrong. NIST is right. You're wrong, Madhava. And I said, are you kidding me? This is a YouTube video. Like, let's go and look at actually how the building was constructed. Let's look at how many things had to have happened in succession for this to fall that way. Like, can we at least go back to, you know, Newton's laws or have you forgotten what those are? And so Richard, just, just to, to conclude there, that's where I realized that the problem was a lot bigger than we, than I realized and potentially a, a lot bigger than what most people realize. Mm. Yeah. You know, I'm with you. Uh, yeah. Like you said, the microspheres, for example, it means a lot to you. So but you go ahead. Yeah. I'm just saying that like the evidence that what, what stands out for you doesn't stand out for most people. Right. Because we immediately go to, um, so what are you saying? Who did it then? Who did it? Who did it? It's like, yeah, 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 exactly. And it's like, if you don't have the entire story that, you know, from the perpetrators to how they did it and blah, 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 blah. They just throw the whole thing away. It's like, oh, you have an incomplete explanation. And that's not the way science works. And, you know. Well, if, if they were convinced by science, it would be a lot easier, as we've said, so um, what happened next? Um, you became aware of the discrepancies between reality and fiction, and you tried to talk to people, I imagine. Uh, how did that go? Terribly. You know, <laughs> it goes horribly every time you bring it up. And the sad part about it is that I couldn't stop talking about it because, you know, quite frankly, from that moment onward, I feel like any other conversation is not worth having. I mean, we should all be talking about this. This is like everything, at least at the time. I thought, why aren't we talking about the biggest event in our lives when it's wrong? And um, But it's very difficult to bring up this topic in conversation, especially it was probably a lot easier back in 2006. Now we are so incredibly polarized. You know, you Mm -hmm. cannot... um, come up with a, you can't even question it without someone jumping to, Oh, you must be a conspiracy theorist. Oh, you must not know what you're talking about. You must be, you know, 
all of these things that have no bearing on your actual argument. So you can't even have a conversation, right? And that's what led to uh, my book, uh, Woke, an anesthesiologist view. Um, Because from where I stand, I see that there's a a lot more um, psychological uh, background uh, that has to be um, analyzed and considered before we can actually have a conversation. And that's not difficult. It's not easy to do. Oh, thank you for that. Yeah, that's your book. Mm-hmm. No, it's not easy. So, so what did, what did you tackle first uh, in this book? What, what what's well, the book? yeah, that that's a really good question. Um, it would, it probably was about three or four months of just getting nowhere. Like I, I didn't go speak to just random people. I went to people who should know, people who should um, react to the science and the evidence, like you would as a as an architect or as a structural engineer would, and when they couldn't see it, when they refused to uh, examine what I was demonstrating, that's where I took a very, very uh, different approach to bringing up 9-11. And uh, 9-11, it's one chapter in this book, and but in order to actually get to that chapter, I asked the reader to go through six other chapters first. And um, the first three, here's what I want to say. You know, we as as human beings, the way we learn, the way we really, really learn is not from someone telling you in front of a chalkboard, this is what is and this is what isn't. We learn through stories. You know, we, we sort of have a narrative brain. Like we once you put it into a story, then it sinks in. And how do you bring someone to understand that they're biased? You know, it's a very, very difficult challenge. It's sort of asking someone um, who has blind spots to see their blind spots. How do you do it? You you can't see a blind spot. That's that's the same thing with how do you get a mind to see that it's biased? It's not easy, but this is where we have to begin. And um, and I'll, I'll move through the book a little bit if you want, but that, you know, what I have to offer and I believe what we need to do right now is we have to teach each other how to tell the right story, you know, how to bring it up and to know where the landmines are as we, uh, you know, um, delve into things before we just go into, well, have you seen this video? Have you seen that video? Did you go and look, did you read this? That's not the way to do it. I mean, we have to engage each other at a very, very deep level. And that's what I tried to do in my book. And um, the first three or four chapters are about investigating how we, uh, how biases develop in our mind. Uh. And um, and through three uh, short little vignettes, I bring up situations that are fertile ground for bias to develop in one's mind. And rather than, you know, asking someone to say, what are your biases? We have to first look at what uh, are, what are the situations that, that give rise to bias? For example, um, when there's something on the line, right? If, if the outcome of your decision will profit you or uh, hurt you, 
That doesn't mean you're biased, but that means watch out. You may not even know that you're biased. So notice if you have something to gain or lose by the situation, for example. Um, Go ahead, Richard. I'm sorry. No, I'm agreeing. Right. And another bias, which is the presumptive legitimacy of the majority, you know, (laughs) right. Just because more people uh, believe in something does not make it's right. I mean, it's right. Uh, we, we know this, right? We we know this, but have we looked really hard at what a majority opinion is? A majority opinion, for example, is more is more likely to be right than wrong when the majority of people come to the same conclusion independently. But most majority opinions are are not that at all, right? Most majority opinions are formulated because a minority of the majority have done the research and then the rest of the majority thinks, oh, well, they've done the research, so I'm going to jump on there. And now you have a large majority. That's actually what happens most of the time. So, I mean, yeah, these are the kinds of uh, concepts that I try to bring the reader through before setting up the other uh, chapters that go into um, different things. Tenets, like uh, like deep understandings that we all seem to know is true that are most likely not true. And I begin with a uh, the consideration of what I've observed in the operating room, uh, chaperoning tens of thousands of people to a state of deep unconsciousness and then back again. And it brings up some really, really interesting questions about uh, just our fundamental belief about who we are. And uh, I can go into that too, if you'd like. Please. Well, here's here's an assumption that most people uh, will not even uh, consider challenging. And the assumption is that we need to have a functioning body to be aware, right? It's like, well, you know, you, you give me this drug and I'm not aware, so it's because my body is not functioning. And this is the general, you know, medical, uh, Western medical approach to who we are, is that it's, 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 a, um, it's called materialism, which means that all we have in this world is materials, whether molecules, chemicals, drugs, and it's the interaction of molecules that give rise to awareness, that's that's how we look at it in the West, right? Yeah, yeah. Not necessarily true. Um, and when you start unpacking this, suddenly things become very, very uncertain. Um, for example, near-death experiences, right? We, we, we sort of say, oh, yeah, well, you know, we, we they're out there, but, you know, who knows? And we think of near-death experiences, for example, uh, as someone is really sick and then they, they're about to die and they see a, a bright light ahead of them in the tunnel and they move towards it. And then they come back and they're like, no, I want to, I want to go back to my life. And you know, they come back to life. It's a lot more than that. Okay. Because people have had these experiences in the operating room where we are monitoring them clinically. We know that their heart has stopped pumping. They've stopped breathing. There's absolutely no signs of life. They're getting cold. 
And then we try and resuscitate them and to no avail. And then suddenly, you know, through our efforts, they start breathing again. Their heart comes back. We've given them a lot of drugs and, you know, we resuscitate them and they're alive. And very rarely people say, oh, yeah, I, I, I remember the whole thing. And as clinicians, we're like, that's impossible because we know your body was not functioning. You said very rarely they say that. Um, yeah. I mean, most people don't have near-death experiences when they okay. have a birth death, right? Okay. Yeah. But some do. Mm-hmm. And this is where we have to be very scientific because our general explanation has to account for the exceptions. If there are exceptions to the rule, then you don't have a good enough rule yet. You know, you haven't explained everything. You know, that's how science goes. Yeah. So these people are saying the 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 few the 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 few that I'm talking about in in these near death experiences will say um, no no I I, I remember uh, because I I saw a light but then I um, I saw myself lying on the operating room table and you asked for epinephrine and you asked the nurse to go get you some paddles they didn't work you shocked me twice um, and then I decided to re-enter my body and that's what happened. And these are accurate accounts. Okay. How does one explain, explain this? If you truly believe that you need a functioning body to be aware, how is this person aware? I don't know, but it begs the question, who exactly are we? And does, do things end when the body dies? That's my, my general sort of um, point here. And this is, um, you can go further with this. Have you ever heard of um, Ian Stevenson? He was a a, uh, professor of psychiatry at the University of Virginia. He has the the most uh, information on reincarnation. Right? Like right now, like I I can see people have a response to reincarnation. Well, we know that, you know, can't be real. and, And it depends on where you're coming from. Some people believe it. Some people don't. Here's a guy that has compiled over 3,000 cases of reincarnation. How does someone investigate a case of reincarnation? Here's the point. These aren't like middle-aged people that say, oh, yeah, I was, you know, I was King Arthur in a past life or, you know, Cleopatra. <clears throat> These are all children <clears throat> who... From the very uh, beginning, from the first time they could start speaking, started talking about their previous life. Not some like spectacular life where there were prince in some kingdom. They were very mundane lives, very mundane. They're like, well, yeah, I lived in this white house at the end of a dirt road. And, um, you know, my husband was a jerk and uh, I had two kids and one was a problem. And then I died of some sort of infection. And that's all I remember. But I remember their names. And then they find the family. They find the family from which this person deceased years before uh, this new child has taken birth. How many of these that are, you know, corroborated can be coincidences? So this is where we have to be very, very open-minded when we address the issue of reincarnation is that, we don't have an explanation for it, but it's clearly happening. And the reason why I bring this up uh, for all of you out there who want to hear about 9-11 is, uh, is now we're faced with the idea that death 
may not be actually the end. And that is really hard to get your, 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 your head around. But because we all function in society as if we have a limited amount of time, we get afraid of dying, mm. understandably. Like who wants to put an end to your existence? I don't. But this is what colors how we approach the world. This is why wars, for example, are so unbelievably awful because like you lose loved ones, they're gone forever. And the, the, the fear of dying from a war of some sort of tragedy like that is huge. And this governs exactly how we go through life. If you knew that when you died, that was the end, how would you live your life? You would pretty much like try to maximize pleasure and things, you know, and time at the expense of other people. You would protect yourself with like, you know, absolute um, devotion to safety, regardless of, you know, what it might cost. So you see where I'm getting, right? This is this is how, you know, we talk about uh, 9-11 is in, in terms of like, you know, how we're all sort of paralyzed by fear and how that shuts down our frontal lobes. And we, we just act in this sort of reptilian midbrain kind of uh, uh, conception of, of how to negotiate life. But this is where we have to begin. And, and this is why, you know, this this chapter comes first. It's like, wait a minute, maybe it's not what you think. And, and maybe um, if we put aside the fear of death, we could look at war differently. The next chapter goes into what I think, Richard, uh, is the biggest conspiracy. It's not 9-11. It's not necessarily this disease that's going around. It is, it is the monetary system. Uh-huh. You know, the monetary system is the biggest conspiracy out there. And it's not even a conspiracy because... In order to be a conspiracy, it has to be covert. This is right out in the open. You know, like we all need to know what fractional reserve lending is. I mean, this is the key to what keeps us enslaved. This is why we don't have time to meditate or spend time with our family or investigate ideas like 9-11 truth. We're too busy. Who has the time to do that? The reason why we're so busy is because we're being manipulated by a system uh, that has been designed to do that. So my point here is that these are the sort of things that you have to bring up first before you can even approach 9-11 with people, you know? And it, well, you know, most people don't have uh, three or four hours uh, to, to adequately lay the foundation for these uh, deep, uh, complex uh, topics that you say precede uh, 9-11 inquiry. Uh, I'm certainly not going to be able to do this in an elevator or on the street, uh, but but go ahead. We'll come back to that. That was an unfair uh, lodge on my part. No, no, no. You're Look, you're absolutely right. Who, who has the time to go through this? But like when you speak to someone, Richard, who should know better and they just don't see it, it means that they have to do deeper inquiry, you know, they have to. And when we say, well, no one has the time, that's what's required. You know, it's required. I'm sorry. And, and this is why it's so hard to move the needle towards clarity is that it requires a huge amount of open-mindedness and desire to know the truth and curiosity. 
which is something that we can't instill in someone. It either, you know, is self-emergent or it's not. And uh, let's assume that, um, that, that uh, our, our viewers and myself have a family, uh, some of which are not on board with the truth about 9-11, or we have jobs and we have associates at work uh, uh, where, where they're not uh, in alignment, um, but we have some time here and there to get into these. So we're going to pursue this line of inquiry and we're going to set aside uh, the majority, perhaps, of activists for just a moment who are really out on the street and, and want to know what to say. We dealt with that uh, Tuesday night when we met Boston 9-11 Truth. They're out on the street. They're in the elevator. <laughs> they've got two or three lines or questions that they approach those people with. That's a different strategy, folks, than, than we're pursuing tonight. So we're going to give Marava the time that he needs to help us know how to take our time effectively with those in our work and home environments. So you go right ahead. Mm, well, that, that's kind of, you know, uh, you know, what I'm trying to present to your audience and look, look, I, I know everyone here that's listening, they're not on the fence about 9-11, right? I mean, like we, we know what happened. And the challenge really is to, as you said, make inroads with your family first yeah. or, or your friends. And um, I think you, you, you gathered that it's not easy and it's potentially uh, devastating to a relationship, um, this, depending on how deeply you hold these, uh, these understandings. Um, so we have to let those who... Uh, who are responsible for this tragedy keep screwing up huh. eventually, you know, and he, look, Oh, here's another, here's another interesting thing here is this. I'm extremely hopeful as I, I presume you are too, Richard. Yeah. I'm me going. very, very hmm? it keeps me going. Yeah. Yeah. It keeps you. Well, yes. Number one, it gives, it gives me at least like an incredible reason to live um, and speak and write. Um, but number two, we have to be hopeful. We, we have to imagine that the, the needle will shift and the world will change. And if, if we can't imagine it first, it's not going to happen. Um, so that's important to, to keep in mind. And finally, I'm not sure where I was going with this, but um, once we once we hold on to that, Oh, here's the thing, right? This is a one-way street. This is a one-way valve. You know, there is no one who knows that the official story is absolute bunk will ever table it and go back to the conventional narrative. Who's going to do that? Like, um, you know, I'm just going to go along with whatever, you know, Sham Sundar said now because whatever. No. You're stuck in our camp forever. I'm sorry. <laughs> and then, but every once in a while, there's attrition on their end. Every once in a while, some new person goes, oh my gosh, tell me more. You know, give it to me. I, I, I want to know more. We're going to win, if that's what you want to call it. We're going to, our side is going to grow. It has to. You know, the entropy is on our side for once. 
Um, so let's be hopeful and remember that in the end, there are going to be, we're going to wake up um, and it will just take a matter of time. And we have to be, it's almost like, it's, it's like jujitsu, right? Like how do you bring someone over without, you know, without getting them to dig their heels and so you can't move them. It's, it's not easy and it's different with every person. Oh, good analogy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're, 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 we're past the second chapter in your book now. Uh, and we're approaching the third chapter. What happens next? Well, yeah, this is the, the, the first three chapters are vignettes. Uh, the fourth chapter, and, and thank you for letting me wax on about the book. Um, I'm afraid if I say yeah. too much, no one's going to buy it. Uh, <laughs> so uh, we have that. The fourth chapter is is an examination of what was happening in uh, the Italian Renaissance when Galileo oh. was was out there. And it, it's really fascinating because um, there was a National Science Foundation poll that was done uh, in 2012, I think, and they just went around and asked uh, American citizens, do you think that the sun goes around the earth or do you think the earth goes around the sun? Simple question, right? Yeah. So do you want to know what the results were? Yeah. 25% of people asked thought that the sun revolved around the earth. Like he was the earth and the sun goes around every single day. Right? Yeah. We, we know that's preposterous. But when you ask these people who are like, oh, my gosh, it, it's so embarrassing that so many Americans don't even know that the, the earth spins on its axis, the sun doesn't go around, ask them how they know that. This is a much more difficult question to ask. I would suggest that nine out of 10 people who are so complacent with their understanding of the universe have no idea how we came to this understanding before there were satellite cameras, before there were you know rockets in space. How did we know? Not many people know this. This is, you know, an invitation to the most educated minds to consider how they have come to their understanding of what they know. Do you know it or do you believe it because someone told you? Right. This is sort of what you uh, alluded to in the, in the introduction. And the reality is it's not easy to tell, you know, just because it's 2021 doesn't mean you can go outside your, your house, look at the sky and know what's happening. This takes very, very keen observations made over uh, a long period of time. And suddenly very subtle things emerge. There are things like stellar parallax, which is a situation where two stars in the deep background change in the relative position based upon the time of year, because we're looking at the same part of the sky from uh, 180 million miles apart. You know, these are the things that are hard to explain with a geocentric orbit, a geocentric model of the solar system. My point here is that there were, there were all these little things, but there was no sort of nail in the coffin, right? Because you could still explain what you're seeing with the fact that, well, all of those things just do those things. That's it. That You know, problem solved. Why do I have to like rebel against the Pope who tells me that I'm living in the center of the universe and, and, and risk, you know, um, uh, mm, 
excommunication because I can I can I just say that that's what happens, right? So here's what's interesting is that that when Galileo died uh, in house arrest, even though he had a telescope that he could take let any common peasant use to examine the sky and see that the moons of Jupiter actually go around Jupiter, people did still didn't wake up to the fact that the sun was the center of the solar system until Isaac Newton. And he presented the undeniable fact that you, you can predict the motion of objects based upon their mass. And when the church could not explain why things moved that way, they had, they had to recant. You see what I'm saying? So paradigm shifts are really, really rare because we, because we are so used to thinking that we're right. But inevitably when it happens, the people who know what's really going on are the minority. They're the ones that are being uh, uh, criminalized. That's the way it always works. And so anyway, that, that's chapter four. Chapter five is this thing on consciousness and uh, anesthesia and near-death experiences. Chapter six is, again, a way to explain to the average uh, reader how our monetary system works, again, by mm. using vignette. And then it becomes very clear, especially when you look at what happened in World War One with the Lusitania and um, – all of the manipulation of the of the information around that by uh, J.P. Morgan, you begin to see that whenever war happens, the bankers always benefit either side, right? Yep. And now we have a conflict of interest. Is it? Are you absolutely certain that these wars are actually what they are, or do the bankers make this all happen through false flags? And then this brings up the 9-11 uh, uh, piece. So anyway, the point is, is that it's a long, it's a long, you know, story and it's a long way to get to it. But I think some people need to hear the whole story in order to see what's really going on. And that's why I wrote the book. Beautiful. So we get to 9-11. People have been prepared to examine their own biases and, what what do we do in chapter? Is it seven or six? Yeah, chapter seven. That's the that's the nine eleven chapter, and um, you know that's the hardest chapter to write, right? Because people are so triggered by that. And again, I'm not, you know, the my, my readership is not people who already understand what happened on nine eleven. It is uh, those who are curious and they're like, wow, what is this book about? Anesthesia, woke, interesting. And you know, I I my intent here is to to sort of lead them into this conversation by um, uh, telling them really interesting stories, you know? And so it, it requires, um, requires curiosity. And um, oh, I, I have, I have some curiosity about the title itself. Uh, this is, of course uh, refers to the woke uh, phenomena or, or what, what would you call it? Uh, yeah. uh, it's, it's in society right now, typically on the left. Um, talk about that before we go on, because... Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Um, so, you know, if, if I could, I would probably rename the book. Um, <laughs> but uh, even if I put a question mark in front of Woke, that would be even better. Or at the end of Woke, you know, Woke, here's what I have to say. So, you know, 
this word has been co-opted by, like you said, the liberal left. Um, and, you know, I, I really, really uh, don't like to use words like liberal or left or right or whatever, you know, because these are just terms that divide us um, and fragment us. And but I know I understand what you're saying. You know, it's sort of the idea that uh, that I'm aware of systemic racism and all of these other uh, very real uh, things that are happening in society, and therefore I'm woke because I understand that. But the word has been co-opted. You know, the reason why they use this term woke, it has to do with the Buddha, um, who you know you may or may not be familiar with with Buddhism and who this person was, but. Um, you know, the story uh, of the Buddha goes back 2,500 years. He was a uh, prince who was protected by his father who didn't want to see him um, suffer. And then he, you know, jumps the walls of the palace, goes out and, and sees, you know, people dying of starvation and disease. And he's like, oh, my God, I, I, have to, I have to end suffering. And he goes off on his own for six years and does all of this, you know, spiritual practice, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and he attains what people would say enlightenment, for example, when people looked at him and saw the bliss in his eyes and the, and the peace in his heart, they said, who are you? And he said, I'm not anyone I'm awake. And this is where the term comes from. And what the Buddha was saying about being, uh, woke or awake was that he was aware of the biases that his mind was creating about reality. And the, you know, the reason why I titled it that is for two reasons, you know, we're, we're coming to an understanding that what we're being told or what, what we're believing is not true. And, you know, it's also a catchy way of an anesthesiologist to title a book, you know, <laughs> because so. it's harder to wake them up than yeah. it is to get them asleep. You mentioned earlier uh, well, that, we were, before we were on the air, tell us about that. Well, you know, it, very often, like we have this saying in in anesthesia that when people ask us uh, what we charge for putting them to sleep, we always say, "That's on the house. We do that for free." I'm only going to charge you for waking up, and you know, it's it's a way to get people to understand like what really we're doing here. You know, what how important it is to be awake responsive alerts and participatory in life. That's what it really is. You know, obviously surgery is important and you don't want to have pain, but in the end, who we are, our essence is awake. We're aware. That's what it is. So yeah, that's, that's why it's, it's titled uh, woke um, because I'm, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to um, get the word back because it's being misused, you know, and, and we see this, right? And I don't want to be political, those of us on the right or those of us on the left, but we understand how some of these people who self-identify as woke are really missing uh, the picture completely. Mm. Well, I certainly have a desire to help people to see the truth about 9-11. Um, Maybe it's the wrong term uh, for me. I don't know. But about that issue, I'm more awake than some of the people, general public out there. And so I feel a compulsion to, to, to do something. I mean, that's why I started 
architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I, I started to feel that way about that disease going around too. So I started talking about that and that's what got me into trouble. And that's mm-hmm. why I'm flying solo now. So um, what is it that we do um, to, to ha- not having had the opportunity most people perhaps to read your book or certainly the per- the people in our lives, our friends, family, colleagues who probably won't uh, read the book um, even if we put it on their coffee table for a year, um, they may not pick it up. So what do we, what, you know, we, we do have some more time here tonight. Mm-hmm. What is the process to find out, to, to, to trigger people's um, willingness to even consider this topic uh, and, and then go from there? Well, I, I'm going to first ask you a question and then I'll answer it. You have spoken to, uh, you know, very large audiences. um, And obviously all the work you've done has really, really brought a lot of people uh, to clarity. And we all owe you a great thanks for that. But my question to you is in your personal um, life, when you're speaking to someone directly, how successful have you been? How many how many people do you think that went from oh my gosh, thank you Richard, and I'm going to now be a truther from now on? Have well, you frequently backing it off from that um, uh, fanciful notion, um, I have had some success, but I'll tell you this: I reject uh, more people than I engage actively. Because I can tell, A, there's no interest. B, there's uh, automatic and immediate uh, denial uh, that comes in the in the terms of, oh, yeah, yeah, I, those guys, <laughs> not realizing even that I'm one of them, mm-hmm. those, those conspiracy theorists. Um, uh, or just floating the idea out there. Did you know there was a third tower that came down on 9-11? That's where I've had the most success because most people don't know. Mm-hmm. Most people uh, don't have it in their minds a, 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 a preconceived uh, subjective answer to that question. Uh, so they're they're receptive. Uh, so I have been I have succeeded in opening the door at least, and uh, and this happens at architecture conferences where I show them the building architects, the building coming down and they go, Oh yeah, that's a controlled demolition. That's mm-hmm. building seven. And uh, they are uh, all of a sudden intrigued because they know what that is. Mm-hmm. They do have a preconceived subjective notion about what that is. Maybe it's objective, but it's a, a it's a controlled demolition. They've seen it. The old hotels on Las Vegas, mm-hmm. in Las Vegas. And, and uh, so I can begin to engage them. Uh, but then I, after convincing them that that happened on 9-11 at 5.20 in the afternoon and it wasn't hit by an airplane, mm-hmm. I then uh, take them to the Twin Towers and this is where I lose half of them. Because, really? yeah, they, they're, they're in pain still, shock, 
it was a it was a psychological operation against us, shock and awe. Mm-hmm. And uh, none of us want to go back there, you know, mm-hmm. and entertain the idea that a we were lied to on a massive scale by our government and the media. Uh, B that um, that uh, we have to we have to challenge uh, our own faith in our government and in the media uh, to 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 not lie to us like that to not murder three thousand people. That's where we lose them, Madhava. So that's where that's where I'm going to ask you to step in and help us out. Well, you know, you, you said uh, some really interesting things there, and what what you know what what I noticed from your explanation there is, first of all, you're an architect, and you talk to other architects, so that is a kind of a rarefied environment. Most of us don't have the opportunity of of like being you know an authority in things talking to other people who should know better. Um, most of us are, you know, non-architects uh, talking to non-architects. So it's a much more difficult uh, proposition to uh, get any traction. Um, in in my four years, you know, I, I, you know, have only spoken to a fraction of the number of people that you've spoken to. Um, I've probably had only three people uh, that I directly got them to question uh, their own ideas about what happened. And in every situation, it has, it has not had nothing to do with education. You know, it's really about, is someone ready to hear this or not? Yeah. That's, that's, that's the most important thing outside of, you know, structural engineers and architects Um, because, you know, they, they, Here's the thing, right? We've, we've, most, you know, lay people do not understand the difference between something that's highly improbable and something that's impossible. We lump them together. And by we, I'm talking about they, you know, they, it's like, oh yeah, you're, you know, it's, it's impossible that the media would let this happen. And they, and they think that's the same thing as it's impossible uh, that all of those columns gave way at ex- precisely the same time in succession, time after time after time again. They, they, they think they're both, you know, impossible. But they actually think that it's more impossible, if there's such a thing, that the media would be lying to them. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Like they, yeah. they don't understand, like, how many more times more probable is something very improbable than impossible an infinite number of times, you know, it's like, that's, you know, it's Sherlock Holmes. Right. So, but we, we, as, as lay people do not uh, know how to really quantify how improbable something impossible is. And that's, that's where people get confused. Um, And they use that. Then, you know, here's something interesting, right? Because you brought up the Twin Towers and, and PSYOP. And um, I, I think you and I had a conversation last year or maybe a few months ago. And my, um, my father-in-law, who, who passed uh, nine, ten months ago, knew that I was, you know, researching 9-11. And when my wife went to his house to clean up, um, he found, she found 
the the original New York Times uh, edition from September twelfth, two thousand and one. The actual paper, you know, he had kept it. Like, I'd like to think that he wanted me to have it because I have it now. And uh, I'm sorry I don't have it here to show you because it's back in Massachusetts um, and we're out in California right now. But on page A3, which is the first page you open after going, you know, from the front page, which is A1, A2, A3, this is the first thing you look at. What was so amazing, and I don't know if you've been able to find this uh, on on digital, but they, it's very clearly a PSYOP. And the reason why I say this is that they're using a technique in hypnosis called anchoring. You know, anchoring is like if I'm uh, working with a client in hypnosis and they want to quit smoking and I'm doing what's called an induction where you make them feel relaxed and you just talk about things and, um, and you say something like, as we feel the cold floor under our feet, something very real that they can feel. You now start, uh, um, you, you now start to think that you don't actually want to have another cigarette. It's just a thought that's appearing in your mind. So you anchor something that is absolutely certain with a suggestion. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. This is what gives, this is what gives hypnosis power is that there's subjective, their uh, subconscious mind is like, yeah, that's exactly right. I, I don't want to smoke anymore, you know, because I feel the ground under my, something completely unrelated. But it's something that's fixed in their own experience to the suggestion you want to give. This is what page A3 had in the New York Times on September 12th. There was this image, this in large image of, you know, the, the smoke coming out of ground zero with some small girders sticking out of the ground and FDNY uh, hats and, you know, just massive devastation. That was real. We saw it on TV. It was absolutely real. And then right below it, there is this, you know, one small page, this beautiful, beautiful diagram of how the Twin Towers were constructed, you know, the tubular design, the interior and exterior columns, and then a progressive collapse where, you know, the top building, the top part of the building crushes the bottom. And then there's an expert that says, oh yeah, well, you know, we, we saw this coming. It's, it's easily explained. There is no possible way that a reporter from the New York times could have come up with that explanation 12 hours after building seven fell. Right. Yeah. There's no possible way this was set up. This was basically telling the world that, yeah, I know it, it seems weird that those buildings came down, but we have an explanation. It's right here. See, look, it's, it makes sense. It was a psychological operation. That's what that was. It's, it's now that we know how uh, fallacious that argument is, it's, you know, clear as daylight that this was a PSYOP. And it's not easy, as you said, the Mark Twain quote, you know, uh, it's much it's much harder to convince someone that they've been fooled. People have been fooled and, you know, for a number of reasons. Yeah, they so, it, 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 this brings up the other point. And forgive me if I'm talking too, too much, Richard, if you want to say something, jump in. Um, people are traumatized. And how do you bring up a traumatic event? 
without traumatizing them. That is the challenge. Right, without uh, re-traumatizing them. Yeah. Correct. Correct. Uh, this is, you know, that's why psyops are so uh, powerful and successful is that, you know, you're not dealing with a conscious mind anymore. You're dealing with something much deeper. Yeah. I've had people just kind of run away from me, not because they disagreed with me, not because they were concerned about talking to a conspiracy theorist, but because the word 9-11 came up. It is very traumatic, takes people back to that day. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's, it, I, I, I've... I wasn't like that because I wasn't as traumatized as, as others. I'm, I'm, but people from New York, particularly Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it was, it was devastating and continues to be devastating. They, they can't talk about it. They can't talk about somebody. So a lot of people, family members just simply can't talk about it. That's too much pain. Well, I, I want to show you, this, this is chapter seven. This is the 9-11 chapter. This is, this is what I titled it. I don't know if you can read it. Is it backwards? No, it's not backwards. Please don't bring it up again. <laughs> yeah. For that reason, right? I mean, you just, people just don't want to, not people. I'm saying some people, some people, the majority of people don't want to talk about it yeah. for that reason. Um, and uh, so how do we do it? And um we have to, as I said, we have to be hopeful. We have to imagine people understanding eventually what's happening. Time is on our side because people are coming to our, our side and we have to uh, embrace that. And um, look, the, the same uh, perpetrators, whoever they may be, are uh, acting right now. We know this is happening. And I'm not, I'm not necessarily talking about... Um, the uh, you know the creators of the disease or the the, the remedy. Um, I'm talking about the media. W- you know we need to, I think, in my opinion, stop uh, trying to answer the question when people come to you and say, "Well, so who did it then? Was it the CIA? You know, was it Cheney? Forget about them. Like we're we're never going to find out who did it." You know, I don't think so. And it's not important. The thing the, the thing that's important right now is for people to understand that it was the media that was complicit. Not a single question about Building 7, that, like this, you know, ridiculous explanation about how the Twin Towers came down, you know, literally uh, within 24 hours after, like, no one knew what happened. No questions. And they're doing the same thing right now. There are – and they're – they're going to get caught. They're getting caught. That's what we need to do is like, say, forget about like, you know, who you think pulled the plunger, whether it be Larry Silverstein or, you know, whatever, and just recognize that the media has been lying because when you say it was the government or some sort of other, um, you know, institution, they're like, oh yeah, we, we, we know the government is not good. Come on. What do you think? I am naive. Of course the government is bad but they wouldn't do something that terrible and the media would call them out. So what we're really challenging here is not the idea that democracy is so great. We are challenging the fundamental tenet of what freedom is, is that the only, the only um, protection we have against tyranny is a free press. And that I think is what's so triggering because mm-hmm. when you start saying, no, no, the, the, the press is not free then 
they have to come to the grips with something much more difficult to swallow, which is if you, if, if, if they're not telling us the truth, then what else have they been lying about all <laughs> the years? Yeah. That's hard. And since then. And since then. So many things. So you have a, a strategy to tell people about the censorship, but first you have to convince them that these buildings were brought down by controlled demolition, mm. uh, right? Because then they won't know uh, that the, the press has lied or not until you convince them of that. Well, you know, that, that should work in a logical world uh, because there's so much proof that the, you know, the buildings were, were blown up, um, but they go right to, yeah, 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 yeah. But that means the New York Times lied, which I can't accept, you know. So it's 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 really difficult. And, and, and perhaps, you you know, you've encountered this before. Like, I, I find the people who are more amenable to learning about what happened are usually, um, you know, demographics that have been disenfranchised and marginalized. And they, they know, like, you know, I speak to some of my friends who are like, of course it was the man. The man's always coming down on us. Of course, it was, you know, like, of course I believe but it's the ones that are sort of um, who are in the system and entrenched in it where the system has worked so well for them. That's where they gasp and say, well, wait, I don't know if I want to know about that because, you know, they don't even know what's at stake for them before they have this immediate reaction to, I don't think I want to talk about that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah. we're dealing with so many different things here when it comes to the psych, our psyche and what we think is, you know, what makes us secure, whether that's our money or the press. Uh, and we're, it's a challenge. And, what, and go ahead. What are the set of questions that we can talk to people once we do get a, a positive indication that they're going to be actively listening? Um, it's obvious I don't have a good answer to that. Right? <laughs> it wasn't you know, obvious until you admit you know, it. I know I've written a book about it. Um, <laughs> if there was an answer, then we would all be, you know, doing it. We, and it's trial and error, um, with different people. And, you know, sometimes I, it's, it's useful to just, you know, where were you when the twin towers came down? Everybody knows where they were. And, um, you know, I, I had the benefit of tuning in before uh, the South Tower collapsed, but after both plane, uh, both buildings were hit. So I didn't know what was going to happen. And I recall uh, because I, I was finishing up my last year at, uh, at Penn and I was on call that night. And I, so I happened to be um, at home watching TV when this all happened. And uh, when the South Tower came down, it's an unforgettable moment because I could not believe that happened. You know, it just sort of like it shimmered and then it went away. I mean, that's how it looked 20 years ago on TV. And even the anchor person that was speaking to the camera with the twin towers behind him and the building goes down, he didn't even know. He just kept on talking and talking. And then someone's like, the building went down and he's, he looked around and he's like, Holy cow. And, um, I, I won't forget that moment. So th that is a moment that has some um, relevance when you're speaking to someone. Do they remember? Did they happen to watch it before they knew the building was going to come down? Like most people that I've spoken to who happen to have seen the buildings burning and not know they came down, 
they all sort of admit like, yeah, that was, that was really weird. And you know, that is a hook, right? And, and to be able to say, there's a reason why you were sort of shocked at that moment. You know, it's, it's, it was a sort of gestalt, like this doesn't make sense and let's work from there. Like there's a reason why it didn't make sense. You know, like it looked like the South tower and then the North tower were giant aluminum cans that a massive boot was just crushing down on it. Just like you crush a Coke can under your foot. Right. But there was no boot. Yeah, that's uh, that's the way I would describe building seven's destruction. Um, mm-hmm. Twin Towers, um, in the first four seconds, it's exactly like that. The top, uh, uh, just the, the top section just disintegrates, basically. Right. But and, and then after that, you see these upward, outward, arching streamers of geometry of fireworks, of freely flying structural steel sections weighing four to eight tons, ejected 600 feet in every direction. And when you point that out to people among the hundreds of witnesses of explosions and and the molten metal, which jet fuel can't create and office fires certainly cannot either, uh, I've got them thinking, at least. I've got them wrestling with their with their worldview, <laughs> which says, uh, you know, I was safe before this conversation started, and now I'm not feeling safe anymore. What well, what are they feeling? Yeah, I, 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 I lost you for about five seconds. Your, your question is, what what are they feeling? Yeah, what are they feeling when their worldview comes? to to collide with with this body of evidence which says that these buildings were blown up i mean what what's going on in the psyche that mm. that that they're wrestling with there well uh you know they're 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 wrestling with their foundations of what uh a free society is it it, it they don't actually See, know that that's what's happening. That's actually what's happening subconsciously. It's like, whoa, my whole, it's not just what you're telling me about the wars. It's like you've pulled the rug from underneath me. You know, I'm sure you've had the same experience, right? Like when, when you became convinced that you were, that, that these things were blown up, I, I was walking around in a daze for a couple of weeks. Like yeah. everything you look at doesn't make any sense anymore. Like you see that it's all fabricated and everything suddenly you know, I, I used to get so mad at people who said the media is, uh, it's a liberal based media, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I used to contribute to NPR at a very high level and I would take pride in reading the New York times and doing their crossword puzzles and reading the Washington post. And then at that moment I was like, Holy cow, look how they're talking about nine 11. They don't actually don't see it. They, and, and for a long time I thought, well, maybe if I just write them a letter then they'll write you know, run my story. You know, I actually thought that I would hear back from NPR and uh, that didn't happen. I wonder why, um, but that's what's happening. That's what perhaps, you know, and, and look, I don't have any answers. I'm just saying that it's, it's deeper than we realize and we can't necessarily expect someone. We, we can't be frustrated with ourselves when people just don't jump on board. 
because we're dealing with something extremely uh, difficult. And um, uh, we need to have compassion for them and us. We're talking about really, really difficult matters that have have to do with much bigger things than uh, uh, girders being thrown 600 feet. Um, yes. I struggle with that because I give these, I've given 600 presentations about the girders being thrown 600 feet. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I, I guess I take pride in, in the, the development of a presentation that has proven so effective because while I'm successful in getting almost everybody, usually one or two persons accepted in most presentations will continue to raise their hand, believing the official story, but uh, everybody else who, who, who came in believing the official story uh, ends up saying, no, we need a new investigation. These things were blown up. Mm-hmm. Um, I take pride in in that conversion, but I kind of leave them hanging there, don't I? I mean, it, there's a counseling session that should be offered after every one of our presentations <laughs> to everybody who's new or relatively new to this information because they are left with a real problem. I mean, mm-hmm. we're, we're getting at the nature of that problem, but uh, yeah. they're kind of on their own after they leave me. Let me ask you this. Um, I feel bad about that. What, so is there some selection bias? Like who comes to see you? Like there must be, like they're not just, were they people off the street or are there people like, well, yeah, I would like to learn more about this. Yeah, it's it's mostly, uh, I would say up to two thirds people who have already become aware of some portion of the evidence, mm. but they bring their friends uh who thought they were crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but afterward, I, I've heard so many stories. I brought my friend. I brought my mother. Yeah. I brought my son. And you convinced him. I, I've been working on him for two years. Uh, you convinced him. And so so this evidence does have a place, certainly. Is it going to bring everybody around? No. Like you said, we're dealing with something much deeper but it's a start. And it was a start for me, uh, David Ray Griffin on the radio, talking about uh, the, the history of 256, well, starting with 118 first responders, uh, uh, witnessing explosions, none of which appeared in any of the official stories, Yeah, <laughs> though they claim to have interviewed a thousand people. Mm-hmm. So the, the, I forgot why I mentioned that. <laughs> Uh, well, you, you may it may come to you, but I would like to point out something you said there, which is the the ones who jumped the fence and came over to our our side were brought there by people they trusted, uh. right? Um, so absolutely, there's a, a huge need for scientific uh, inquiry and, and robust investigations and data, but ultimately, you know, it's a question of trust um, and. You know, you're asking them to you're asking them to give up trust in something that they've trusted their whole life, whether that be the New York Times or government or whatever. And it takes someone else that they trust as much to get them to go there. You know what what we're talking about here is is not much different than uh, the victim of child abuse who refuses to see that their uh, 
uh, psychopathic parent is psychopathic. They just, it's harder for them to give up that idea that they're, you know, their parent is good. Uh, well, let's, let's make it even more graphic. Uh, it, a family in which that psychopathic parent is incesting uh, a, a child, uh, it's impossible for the child uh, psychologically and physically to turn around and, and uh, defend himself uh, or herself and uh, much less uh, lay the blame on the parent. The parent is God. Our government to us is like God. We need to trust that uh, these are the ones who are, are defending us. Um, so to, to be told by an architect that your government just murdered 3,000 people Who's going to believe that? Exactly. Well, that's why I don't say that. Um, for, that's, I don't, in my line of work in 9-11 Truth, I simply show the evidence and and I leave them hanging on that cliff. That's and brilliant. That's all, that's all I can do. They got to sit with it, right? Well, yes. And uh, I, I think you're being um, very... Uh, apt at not going all the way they have to come to those conclusions themselves um and this may in fact you know be a suggestion for our uh those of us uh who are trying to bring people over is you know there's no reason to go right to what does that mean because that's too difficult to swallow the first time you can't you just have you know get them to sniff around and say yeah something stinks around here and I don't know what it means, but, and then the next time something else and something else. And, uh, you know, that was a pretty graphic uh, metaphor. Richard, thank you for <clears throat> bringing up incest. Um, but, you know, the other uh, way of looking at it is it, it is the mother of a serial killer, right? Who just can't accept any evidence. Um, no matter how uh, uh, robust it is. They just they have they assume that the you know that the sheriff is lying and the uh, all the whole police force is you know trying to um, besmirch my son's you know wonderful uh, character um, you know they they just can't see the the evidence doesn't mean anything when when it comes down to things like that so it, yes like you said show them the evidence and you know you. Uh, are doing the right things because you have an audience that you have the, the trusted friend over here and then the expert in front of you. And that's a great combination. It's hard to do it independently. Yeah. What are, what are you going to do? Um, so, Oh, Oh, here, here's the other sort of concept. I know we're, we're sort of closing down here, but um there is another huge conspiracy afoot right now. Um, I think, you know, we know what that is. And what, what I'd like to point out here is that um, I spoke uh, publicly uh, a couple of months ago on the anniversary of 9-11 in Massachusetts um, at uh, what was what was a health freedom rally. And, the, you know, my commentary or my comments were presumably supposed to be about uh, this disease that's going around and the approach we have to protecting each other, uh, speaking out against that. 
but I decided to make it about 9-11. And I fully expected that I was going to get jeered um, oh. for, you know, for saying the wrong things on the anniversary of our fallen hero's death and all of this stuff. It wasn't like that at all. I mean, that audience who could see through this particular uh, distorted narrative that we're being subject to, they understood what happened 20 years ago. They, you know, I'm not saying all of them, but huge applause when I talked about 9-11. And the point I'm trying to make here is that these, the continuing distortion of uh, the facts is going to work against them. Mm-hmm. Right. So there'll be some people who are, who are challenging the, uh, the therapy that we're being uh, asked to get. They're the ones that maybe, you know, when they see how ridiculous these mandates are, they'll, they might, they may be the ones that will be open to a nine 11 conversation. Um, and likewise, the other way around too, the, you know, the nine 11 truthers here that may not have looked at um, the, the current situation, it's pretty obvious what's happening to me at least. And actually that's what I've been talking about publicly for the last um, 14 months um, because I know more about that than, uh, than this topic. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. And you've done your homework. Um, anybody who does do their homework, not on CNN or CBS or NPR, but on alternative media will find great occasion to question what we're being told there. And there are parallels. There are numerous parallels between 9-11 and the current disease going around. Um, uh, and, and we'll get into that another time. Uh, I'm aware that there are people that have been asking questions uh, of you. And, they, and, and Gail's been assembling these questions, and uh, I think she's ready to come and uh, see what you can do with them. You ready for that? Yeah, I'm. I'm ready to once again uh, fall short of actually coming up with any real answers. But go ahead, <laughs> give them the challenge, Gail. All righty, and I think I'm speaking a little better now. The numbness is wearing off. Oh, good. Um, Gail had yeah. uh, dental work done today, and. Uh, she was uh, quite challenged. It was fun to listen to her. <laughs> yes, right before the podcast. Okay, so the first question is from Anthony. Mm-hmm. He asks, as a qualified medical professional, what would Madhava say that the bone fragments being scattered so far and wide in the WTC debris field says, and what does it indicate? That is a great question. Uh, thank you, Gail, and thank you, Anthony, for that. So it, it, in my um, uh, um 19 or so years as an anesthesiologist, I've seen what um, crush injuries look like. I've seen what happens when a human body meets a wood chipper or a table saw uh, or, you know, uh, chemical fires. You, you know, we are, our bodies are fragile, but it takes an enormous amount of force to blow apart the human body such that bone fragments remain. 
And that is a really good point because, uh, you know, we, we, we often talk about the girders that were thrown 600 feet. The fact of the matter is bone fragments were found over a fifth of a mile away from ground zero. Yeah. Um, and so not only was the human body or human bodies uh, blown literally to smithereens, they were also blown uh, almost, I think it's something like 1150 feet. And, and 700 of bone fragments uh, this big uh, were found on top of the skyscraper across the street from the South Tower. That's correct. I mean, does that is it, is it even possible that in a gravitational collapse, uh, that degree of pulverization of of bone fragments and 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 Cyril Wecht says in the excellent movie, uh, uh, un, the unspeakable, uh, that uh, the bone fragments from one person were found wedged in the soft tissue. Of another person. Yeah. I mean, just this, I mean, we all have to stop for one moment and consider what that means. That is a, an enormous amount of force. And to be very, you know, succinct, not from a gravitational collapse, no possible way. Um, and, you know, the other uh, interesting thing is that one person, there were 200 different parts of one person's body. 200 right that were all found that is not a gravitational collapse um but yeah thank you for bringing it up yeah well guess what there were uh more than 1100 people for whom there were no fragments whatsoever found what does that tell us yeah great talking points over thanksgiving dinner oh dear <laughs> oh, because it's coming up. It's coming up, uh, and we're going to start, you know, making our arguments <clears throat> when we have all our family and friends together. Yeah, I'll you go may want to get that one. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. All right. The next question is from Miles. He asks, or he says, "I am promoting Richard and his webinars and the LC for nine eleven legal webinars and Thank their you, website." <laughs> yes, as exemplars of scientific epistemology, but with my scientific ontology. Do you have one too? You better so, read that again. Yeah, unless you got it. So the <laughs> quite yes, do you have an exemplar, I think is the question. But he says, I am promoting Richard and his webinars mm. and the LC for 9-11 legal webinars. So he's promoting mm. them and their websites as exemplars of scientific epistemology am i saying that correctly mm -hmm. epistemology yes, yes. Mm -hmm. but with my scientific ontology do you have one too uh, oh an I exemplar think. of scientific yes. epistemology yes. um well you know my, my background is in medicine uh i do have an engineering background so uh, I, i'm not sure if i'm interpreting the, the question correctly um that's a really good question let me think about this for one moment when it comes to like truly what I like, one of my heroes in terms of sense making with, with, with science um, is uh, Richard Feynman, who was an American uh, physicist that uh, died um, 30 years ago. He was 
approximately, you know, he was a brilliant mind. And uh, the thing about him was that he was so unbelievably humble. Um, and just, you know, when his mind started going, he just looked at the science and he had a way about him that could explain things better than anyone I've ever heard. Um, so I, that's, I, I don't think it's a really good answer to your question, but that's how I'm interpreting it. And there's a quote from him uh, uh, that the, the arbiter of competing hypotheses is experiment. Yeah. You have to, you know, if you can get bone fragments to do what we've been talking about in a collapsing building, uh, then show it. Yeah. Um, if you can get molten iron to be produced by office fires or kerosene, then show it. Uh, you know, uh, if if uh, steel, as NIST claims, has been degraded by uh, sulfur in gypsum wallboard, uh, then show it. <laughs> but never in the hundred year history of gypsum wallboard have we ever had the 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 the, the calcium sulfate debond and attack the steel that it's designed to protect. So <laughs> we have all kinds of problems with the NIST mm -hmm. report, but Richard Feynman uh, uh, has been awesome for us in this movement. Yeah. Well, uh, how so? Oh, you mean from his approach to well, his quotes? Yeah. Yeah. Well, here's the other thing. Let, let me just add upon that for one moment, which is um, what, what, what hit me right away uh, was like you said, like how do we demonstrate that, that these things are actually possible? They haven't. But in terms of building seven, for example, the best, the closest you can come to is to build, you know, a finite element analysis, a computer model and see what happens. And when the model doesn't match observe, observe behavior, you know, your model is wrong. And like they've, you know, in effect proven their hypothesis wrong by showing that the model doesn't work. You know, it, it's just like unfathomable that it's just sort of accepted. Like, oh, and then they claimed that it does uh, prove their hypothesis when it actually does just the opposite. I know. That's, yeah, that's why we hired uh, the University of Alaska. Yeah. One of the top forensic structural engineers in the country, Leroy Halsey, to conduct a, a four-year finite element analysis. Mm -hmm. And he, mm -hmm. the only way he could get those that building to fail like it did in the video was to remove all the columns uh, 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 on the inside first, followed by a second later or so, the outside columns. Now, mm -hmm. fire doesn't do that. I thought that was the most compelling uh, two-minute segment of the entire movie, and that's something that I've shared in, in um, some of the content that we produce on The Pulse uh, on the anniversary of 9-11 or just before that, which is that particular segment because that really hits at home. It's like, this is another, that, that's the proof. Don't you think, Richard? It's like, the, that's the only way to make it happen. How else can you prove it? Yeah, well, he also proved that it couldn't have happened uh, the way NIST uh, said it happened. Uh, yeah, well, we, you know, we, we sort of had that information right away, right? Because the, the model didn't match the observed behavior. So we knew that it, it didn't work, even though they claimed that it did, you know, just, just you know, disingenuously. But, um, when Halsey showed that the only way the building, the model would act like building seven was to do that, blow the internal columns and then the external columns 1.3 seconds later, 
that's effectively proving that the, they were blown up. That you can't have a stronger uh, argument for that. So that was a good okay. movie. Gail, I see a question from Ibrahim. Can you take that one? Yes, I was just getting ready to. You always catch him before I can. Oh. Okay. Okay, so Ibrahim says, is there a medical explanation for why many of the first responders died from cancer since 9-11-2001? Yeah. I presume that he's asking you, Madhava, if there's an alternate explanation. Certainly there was a cocktail of all kinds of horrible chemicals, including asbestos and, and other things. But you, what do you think? Well, I, I, that's, I didn't think there was another explanation. I, I I think that dust was pretty bad. You know, it wasn't just <laughs> asbestos, right? I mean, we had potentially, uh, you know, nanoparticles and horrible things. And, you know, and this is where I would like to ask you, we, we, we sort of are, we're running with a model that it was a uh, highly energetic um, uh, explosive used, whether it was nanoengineered or not, I don't know. And th this is where, um, you know, we in the truth movement start to diverge because some people say, no, it has to be this and it has to be nanothermite. No, it was some sort of energy weapon and all of these things. And I've always found that to be very, um, it's not helpful, right? I mean, we need to unify here, but what else could it have been in your opinion? If it wasn't, you know, aluminum and what is it? Ferric oxide. Well, um, thermite is composed of aluminum powder and iron oxide. Yeah, and yeah. and um, and we have the uh, peer-reviewed paper in two thousand and nine, wherein eight international scientists, uh, led by Niels Herrett in Copenhagen, found and documented uh, nanothermite, uh, red-gray chips that are attracted by a magnet. Yeah, uh, yeah. they zoom in fifty thousand times, and they find. Uh, nanoparticles of iron uh, oxide and aluminum. Those are ro those are rhomboidal shaped uh, uh, particles uh, and aluminum platelets. Uh, this is uh, th particles that are a thousand times smaller than the diameter of a human hair. Yeah. So these are uh, in all these red gray chips um, composed of these tiny particles are in all the, the the samples that were independently collected and documented mm -hmm. by them. So. Um, what else could it be? Um, uh, I I don't have an answer for that because we have direct forensic evidence that's irrefutable and overwhelming to suggest that explosives and thermite uh, were uh, responsible for the destruction of the towers. Yeah. And there's an FAQ over on the AE 9-11 Truth website that deals with the directed energy weapons uh, and the uh, the mini nuclear uh, weapons that um, are said by some to have brought down the towers, but uh, I, I don't find uh, adequate evidence uh, at all in, in for those th theories. Yeah, I, I'm in agreement with you, and and I would like to add something here before we move on to the next question, Gal, which mm -hmm. is um, the evidence uh, that you cite there. I believe it, but when I when I when we uh, present this to uh, the naysayers, they're like, why should I believe a third party, right? And it's an interesting argument because it seems to be raised very, very often. It's like, well, you know, we have these brilliant scientists and engineers at AE911 Truth 
coming up with these things uh, and independent um, investigators finding, you know, stuff, explosive residues in the, in the dust. And then the argument always is, well, why should we believe them? Right. And this is a very, very difficult nut to crack. And, uh, and, and, and that's where, you know, the chapter 9-11 in Woke is a little bit different because I don't ask anyone to believe any third party. You know, uh-huh. we're being called upon really to see it for ourselves. We have to see it for ourselves. And, yes. and therefore, the, the kind of evidence we pick has to be uh, something that they can see absolutely is true. And there's not much of it. Right. Because there's not much evidence that everybody can agree upon. Like, yeah, this is true. And um, that's why it's a challenge. Right. Because, you know, this is how it works. Like when I when I speak out about the disease uh, that's occurring right now, people say, well, why should we believe you, Dr. Seti? You're a 9-11 truther. <laughs> you know, and, 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 the, and the same goes for my writing on, on 9-11. They're like, well, you don't believe in this, um, this Wuhan disease. Or, I, I believe in it. I, I don't want to misquote myself. The point is, is that I have a different opinion about our approach to uh, this. And so it's being used against us. You know, if we believe something here, then, and you know better than I do, Richard, like what happens when you speak out <laughs> things like this that you're not supposed to, but um it's a it's a tough nut to crack. Yeah. Well, let's crack the next one. Yeah, bring it. <laughs> okay, I just want to add this really quick. This is the Miles um, sort of explaining his question a little bit so that we can get a little more accurate answer. He says that epistemology is the process. My question is, what is your why, quote unquote, for doing what we are doing? So that's his just that was his question. Oh, that's brilliant. That's a great question, Miles. Thank you for yeah. that. Um, do, do you want to go first with that, Richard? Or you, oh. yeah. <laughs> I got oh, angry. My huh? simple answer is that I was really angry that we were lied to on such a scale. I was angry and I needed to do something about it. And I was an architect and these are buildings. How about you, Madhava? Well, you know, this is where I want to get a little metaphysical. Um, you know, 9-11 to me at the time was the whole thing. And now I see it as a tiny, tiny piece in a puzzle. And uh, the picture that's painted on this image of which 9-11 is a puzzle piece is huge. I mean, it goes back not just centuries, but perhaps further than that. This is about... Uh, you know, a very, very deeply, um, it's a deep, it's a deep conspiracy of, you know, ruling classes on this planet that go back thousands of years who believed that they have every right to um, control other human beings. And 9-11 is one of these uh, ways in which this has played out on this planet. So, um, like when you have everything, here's something interesting, right? It's like there are are, the vast majority of people on this planet, I believe are good. I I really do. And if you take those people and say, look, you can have anything you want to, 
you can, you know, there's enough. You just tell me what it is you want and you can live a happy life with abundance and love. Most people would say, yeah, sign me up. Right. But there's going to be a few people where that's not going to be enough. Why? Because they get off or they, what they really want is to have everything when other people don't have anything because that makes them, you know, whatever that is, it's about control and having more and, this is a very, very deeply psychological process that's happening in our own psyche as a species. And 9-11 and all of this stuff is to flip the puzzle over, like look at the other side. What kind of world would this be if we realize that most of the conflict on this planet were, were started by false flags? I mean, like how many lives would be saved? How sure are you that there is not enough to go around. Are you like, we're sort of we're raised with the idea that there's scarcity everywhere you look, you know, but what if the world is actually abundant. So th- there is an enormous amount of, uh, there's an enormous amount on the line for me with this. And it, that's why I'm doing it because it's not simply to bring the perpetrators to task. It's mm-hmm. about, you know, it's about freeing our species. We, we uh-huh. could be so free. And, you know, the last topic in my book that we didn't talk about was um, extraterrestrials. And, you know, this is another situation where you talk about it and suddenly nobody wants to believe you about 9-11 because you believe in, you know, E.T. And there's some real big, big truths out there that are being hidden. There's no question about it. And it, the reason why they're so well hidden is because people believe the media and that is the only that, that that's the perpetrator here that we should all be able to agree upon um and you know holding them to task is what we're here to do yeah excellent okay gail all right this is a question from ray he asks can a truther who thinks to be woke have a bias i think what he's saying is can somebody who's a truther who's you know, is awake, can they have biases? Is it harder for a truther who believes to know the truth, accept new facts that could change that truth? Huh. Well, that's an excellent question. Mm-hmm. Way to go, Ray. Wow. I'm glad yeah, I don't have to answer it. Yeah. That's- <laughs> <laughs> um, I can tell you this. Uh, once I got into 9-11, Madhava, um, uh they they tried to show me all kinds of things that I didn't want to see. You know, geoengineering was was one of them. And it was hard uh, because that just expands the conspiracy, if you will, uh, so much deeper. And and then, I mean, it was one thing and, and then another. Uh, conspiracy after conspiracy. And I'm, I, I just... I just, I, I typically kind of shut down. It's very hard. Um, uh, and anyway, what about you? Um, wow. Uh, that is an interesting uh, response to that question. Uh, and what I want to say here is that, you know, when another massive conspiracy is, is clearly in front of you, you, you realize that there's a big conspiracy besides 9-11, look what's happening now, right? Because in, in, in one way, it makes the truther be like absolutely certain 
that um, we're on the right track with 9-11. It's like, now they're doing this. Look, it's all happening. It all makes sense now. But to the person who was not a truther to begin with, it's like, oh, come on. How could they all be true? You know, now you're going to tell me that this is also a conspiracy and that's a conspiracy. And now the earth is flat. And, you know, so it, it's, it, it's, there's a divergence with more and more horrible conspiracies that are in play. The more confident we are in our position about 9-11, but the harder it is to bring someone over because suddenly now they have to accept all of these crazy, horrible things that are going on on the planet. And, um, you know, it's, it's a challenge, but I, I, I want to go back to the question itself. Um, could you read that again, or at least just briefly tell me what the question was, because that was an interesting question. Yes. He says, can a truther who thinks to be woke have a bias? Is it harder for a truther who believes to know the truth, accept new facts that could change that truth? Brilliant. Yes, you can have a bias as a truther. And one of the one of the sources of bias that I bring up in my first few chapters is something that I name uh, overconfidence in an accepted position. Like, how do you know that you're we, – we understand that we're confident, but how do you know that you're overconfident? How does one recognize that one is overconfident? And what I suggest as a sign for that is how willing are you to hear someone out who disagrees with you? If, right. if you think – and it's a very subtle difference, right? Because if, you, if you're sure that person is wrong – that's one thing. And you're like, oh, I, I know you're wrong. I'm not even going to listen to you. Versus, I'm so sure I'm right. That's why I'm not going to listen to you. It's a subtle difference. Because if you're sure that you're right, you're never going to listen to another opinion. <laughs> you're not going to learn anything either. Not, but as opposed to, like, I'm so sure you're wrong, It's that at least you're holding on to the fact that you may be uncertain in your position. And so when a better counter argument arises, you may entertain it. So it's an overconfidence in what you believe. And so that's what we have to be careful of us in the truther movement is yes, we understand this, but that doesn't mean that we have to be fully certain of everything. That's where we have to be careful. We're going to subject our viewers to this very test mod of a few months. We're going to have three different parties on at least three uh, on the uh, show presenting three completely different sets of evidence about what happened at the Pentagon. Mm -hmm. Barbara Honiger, David Chandler, Craig McKee, and maybe others. And, and these, these, this has caused, as you probably are aware, no end of of controversy and acrimony in the 9-11 truth movement. Yeah. But the idea is to present the evidence and to listen mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. with an open mind, with possibly changing uh, uh, the position that is held by mm -hmm. our viewers mm -hmm. and ourselves. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's going to be uh, uh, the challenge uh, uh, after the new year um, for many of us. And we're we're building up uh, to that point. That's <laughs> where great. We can 
handle the backlash that's going to come. I can hardly wait. Three parties. <laughs> I love yeah. parties. No, I'm looking forward to that. Um, and a couple of things. First of all, a shout out to David Chandler. Um, you know, we're, we're friends on Facebook, but I've never really talked to him. But his um, uh, five minute uh, slow mo video of the, of the North Tower is one of those pieces of evidence that I say is, is incontrovertible. You know, like you don't have to listen to what David Chandler says, but just watch the video. At least we can accept that. Um, and the other point there is it would be lovely to come to some consensus about what happened at the Pentagon. Uh. Right. It would be amazing. But it, it's not actually super necessary. You know, like uh -huh. where I sort of end is challenge what the media is telling you. If you can challenge that and realize that they lie about enormous things, not just little things, but huge things, then we've made an enormous amount of progress with the truth movement. Like we don't necessarily have to know exactly what happened at the Pentagon or, you know, what else was in the Twin Towers besides nanothermite. We, it'd be nice to know, but in order to free the, you know, the, 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 the human collective, we don't need to actually know that. We don't even need to know who did it. We just have to know that we're being lied to, you know? That's how mm -hmm. I see it. That's the beginning. Okay, Gail. Oh, it's gonna it's gonna <laughs> fall. It's gonna fall like a forty-seven story building. Uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. Like that. okay, yeah. All right. This question is from Noel. She says, "I've convinced a few people about nine eleven. Then they'll say they don't care. What's that all about?" <laughs> you got to just you know you have to give them a big hug and then move on and have a cup of tea with them and talk about something else. Yeah. I mean, you have to care, right? I mean, if you don't care, then, you know, if you don't care that your own government murdered 3000 people and then 2 million people in Iraq and Afghanistan and laid upon us, uh, the most, uh, destructive, uh, effort to, for our civil liberties through the Patriot Act, the military commissions act, the National Defense Authorization Act of 2012, where any of us can be arrested, thrown into jail without a right to a lawyer, a trial, a jury, then you're not worth my time. And Noel, they're not worth your time either. Even if they're, well, and what if they're family members uh, is, is the next question. Well, you got to love them. Gail has some experience with this. Um, you, you just got to love them, right, Gail? That's right. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I, I wholeheartedly agree. And, and I, I like how you caught yourself about, you know, uh, compassion there. It just don't waste your energy on them. That's yeah, exactly. Save your breath. On that issue, that is. Yeah, on that issue. You can still yeah. love them and, and just like don't talk about 9-11 with them because it's not <laughs> yeah. your time. Yeah. Uh, especially on Thanksgiving, by the way. Yeah. yeah. You have to I think you have to give them that the respect that they truly believe that they're right. So they believe they're right just as much as we do. It's just that we know that they're, you know, deceived or misled or not, don't have an open mind. But I, th I yeah. think a lot of people mean well, they, they, they really sincerely think they know truth. Okay. The next question is from Ziola. She says, how can we open up our algorithms in a safe way for all? This information should be able to surpass censorship on some realm or another. So where do we need to go to get the message out? 
Um, by, by algorithms, she is referring to the algorithms that, that these social media platforms use to. Yes, I, I believe that's what she's talking about. Yeah. 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 How can we open up the algorithms in social media in a safe way for all? I was reading it more uh, um, metaphorically, but uh, you go right mm. ahead. That <laughs> could be. Going. Well, that could be also. Mm. Well, um, well, I don't think we can, right? We don't run these platforms. Uh, you know, I, I, I um, contribute most of my uh, content to a platform called The Pulse and Collective Evolution. And um, I've been speaking out about the disease uh, recently. And uh, that, um, among other things, um, caused them to lose their YouTube channel, which is mm-hmm. a huge, huge setback. Yeah. For, for a number of reasons, because, you know, look, I, I don't have to sell books to feed my family, thank God. Um, otherwise we'd be a lot skinnier, (laughs) quite frankly. Um, and I, and I don't have to create the content, but for, for those folks, they're they're really, really earnestly trying to, um, uh, swing the needle towards clarity. It's a devastating blow, you know, when you lose your YouTube channel and the idea that we have to tiptoe around and not say the right, say the wrong things is absurd to me. Um, but we can't sidestep it, but notice before we get so mad at them, how hard would this have been to do 50 years ago or 40 years ago to get the truth, the the truth out? It would have been impossible, right? We'd be like at the street corner handing out pamphlets, like, Hey, let's talk about, it would be impossible. So yes, it's being controlled. It's terrible that it is, but at least, you know, as an independent sovereign being, I can post something and have a couple thousand people listen to it, which is amazing to me. And It's it's their it's their company, so they can sadly do whatever the whatever they want. But tell me about what's, your, what's your metaphysical or metaphorical thing that you were gonna with well, algorithms? I, I imagine I carry my own censorship algorithms inside my own head, and um, how can I open those up uh, in a safe way so that I can be free of my own programming? I'll just yeah. that was a rhetorical question. Let's go. Let's go to the next <laughs> listener question. <laughs> Okay, so this next, uh, the name, I'm not quite sure if I'm going to say it correctly, but it looks like it's 1M Remington. So I'm not sure if that's how it's intended to say, but uh, the question is, do Americans really care? How does morality and predilection play into the willingness to ignore the huge crime of 9-11? do Americans really care? And do Americans really care? Yeah. And then how does morality mm. and predilection play into the willingness to ignore the huge crime of nine 11? Well, n- notice, well, first of all, uh, I think aside from the other, you know, I forgot where her name was, who has friends who don't care. I think most, most people care whether you're American or not. But notice that um, morality is something that is subjective because how many people consider us to be immoral for denigrating the lives of the first responders and our brave soldiers for talking about it? You see what I'm saying? So um, it's we like this is where we have to be very careful, right? With like we have to understand that from their perspective, we are actually 
the immoral ones, oftentimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so using morality as an argument uh, to bring people over is uh, bound to run into big, big problems when we say, well, you know, if you were moral, you should really consider this. It's a, it's a, it's a, um, what do you call it? It's an IED, you know, it's, you don't want to walk into that bomb, especially at Thanksgiving. Yeah. 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 (laughs) This next question is also from Ibrahim and he asks, please share some words of wisdom on how the disagreements within the 9-11 truth movement have weakened the movement itself. Big egos and some members of the movement have negative impacts, unfortunately. So some words of wisdom on how the disagreements in the 9-11 truth movement have weakened the movement. Well, if you want wisdom, we should let Richard speak to that. <laughs> that's more of a statement than a question, but I thought it was good. To be honest with you, I, I really think that's a question for you, Richard, because you know, you know, where all of these, you know, these voices are coming from and, and how it's impacted the, uh, the movement. It's absolutely true. Um, it's, it's divided. And I think there Personally, I'm not one of these people who is prone to call people agents or spreading disinformation, on, which is on purpose, uh, or in misinformation. Um, I think we just have some very strong people who have seen evidence uh, their way uh, and, um, and have collected not just them, themselves, but people around them. And, and these people start uh, believing uh, that the, the other camp is uh, an agent or paid or, or whatever. And, 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 it, and it gets very acrimonious. Um, there are attacks. So I'm, uh, I, I think the real answer is, the, re- the real question here is, uh, how do we, how do we deal with that? Who aren't a part of it? Because I'm, I, I tend not to attack people. So, mm-hmm. uh, but but people do listen to me um, for whatever reason, and um, I encourage people to to listen and and talk science with each other, not hurl insults and um, ad hominems. Uh, and I call people out on it when I see that happening. I don't know what else uh, to do about that. Mm-hmm. But, um, I do know that we've, that's got to be our last question because I just realized what time it was. Um, Madhava, um, what have you learned uh, uh, in this conversation today? I know what I've learned and it's an awful lot. Um, but just in terms of dealing with um the subject, uh, uh, maybe at a deeper level uh, or reflecting on the work of your book. Uh, do you have any insights uh, to share with us that are new to you? From this conversation? Yeah. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> you haven't told me anything I don't already know. Uh, no, I'm, I'm kidding. I, what I've learned here is that um, you have a very, very supportive audience. And the fact that people stuck around for two hours to, to hear someone like me who really is not, you know, an expert in 9-11, but we're here to support you and, and this movement. And, uh, you know, these are great questions. And um, I, I really believe that people who take the time on a, 
Thursday evening and it's, you know, it's what, I don't know what time it is out there. It's probably like 11 o'clock, right? Uh, on the East coast, um, care tremendously and questions like the one we just heard, uh, you know, what do we do when there's disagreement in, in our camp? That speaks to a very uh, deep level of connection with uh, the the intent of what this is. It's about coming together. It's not about like being right or, you know, being the first to the punch. It's about slowly coalescing into a group that's unified in their understanding of what's happening on the planet. And 9-11 is a big part of that. And it's it is it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. I'm incredibly encouraged. I feel really um you know, grateful to have had this time with uh, both you and Gail uh, and your audience. And I, I just sort of ask us honestly to open up our hearts and um, embrace even those who disagree with us because we have to come together. We have to come together eventually. Mm-hmm. Eventually we're all going to wake up. So, you know, <laughs> why be pissed off at people that, you know, right now, because they're going to be your friends eventually. It's going to happen. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. It really is. Gail, you have some uh, thoughts um, before we, we close? Oh, well, that it just this was a really another wonderful podcast. And I have to tell you that there were a lot more questions. This was an, a very awesome group watching from the different uh, Facebook and YouTube. So I deeply apologize to everyone there who had more great answers. But I think we could honestly be here for another hour or two before we would get all the rest of these questions. So great participation. Thank you everyone so much. Yeah. Yes. Incredible. And, and Madhava, that was awesome insights and information. I really enjoyed this podcast. You really touched some very deep levels I know within myself and I'm sure everyone else too. Oh, I hope so. Yes. Thank you. Thank yeah. you, my friend. Um, we're we're going to continue to digest some of the things we've heard uh, from you for quite a while. So uh, mm-hmm. I'm grateful and I know there'll be a continuing uh, dialogue uh, online. So we'll see you guys there. And thanks uh, so much, everybody, for your incredible support. And uh, go to the website, uh, richardgage911.org and support Gail and I in this incredible effort that we have uh, been about um, now for two months, starting over from scratch. We need your support. We don't have the support from anywhere else but you. Thank you again, everybody. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us on yet another informative and soul-stirring episode of Richard Gage 9-11 Unleashed. We'll be on the air again next week with another very special guest in the 9-11 Truth Movement and beyond. Visit us at richardgage911.org where you can find our schedule, learn about the WTC evidence, and of course, sign up for our emails and support us. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. (laughs) 